This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. It's a modern-day Kafkaesque twist. One morning, Anders, a white man, wakes up to find his light skin has turned an undeniably darker shade of brown. So starts author Mohsen Hamid's latest book, The Last White Man. It tells the story of a man who unexpectedly experiences his environment and relationships with new eyes and new tensions. And it's not long before the protagonist, Anders, realizes he's not the only one whose skin is changing. Joining me now is author Mohsen Hamid. Mohsen, welcome to Reset. Thank you. So as I mentioned, your main character, Anders, wakes up and discovers his skin is no longer white. He's now a brown man. So how did this concept come to you? You know, it's hard to know exactly where things come from. But uh, in my own life, uh, one thing which happened to me was uh, around 2001, I'd been living in America for 18 of my first 30 years. And uh, I'd gone to these sort of elite universities and I was living in New York City, a very cosmopolitan place, had a well-paying job. And although I'm a you know, brown uh, man with a Muslim sounding name, um, most of the discrimination that I'd experienced had been you know, fairly mild. It wasn't something I thought of as particularly significant. And after the attacks of 9-11-2001, of uh, suddenly things changed. I found myself being you know, uh, given extra security at, at the airport and being you know, put in a separate room at immigration and held for hours and questioned. I was pulled off an aircraft on the runway one time. I was you know, going onto buses with a bit of a stubble on the weekend maybe with a backpack and people looked sort of uncomfortable and mm-hmm. sometimes they switched seats. And you know, um, I felt like I'd lost something, like something had changed. I felt like you know, I, wanted, I was the same, but people were reacting differently. And, and I started thinking about you know, what had happened to me, what I'd lost. And I thought, you know, in a weird way, maybe I'd had a kind of partial whiteness. I'd been allowed to pass. And suddenly that had been revoked. And, and it made me think, you know, what was this thing? And you know, how had I been complicit in it? And what did it mean to lose it? So you're seeing yourself within Anders' experience. Well, I would say that um, uh, to a certain extent, I see myself in all my character experience. But, but I, think, I think that experience gave me this idea of, of exploring this, this loss of identity or this loss of whiteness, this loss of racial belonging. And, and then how I wanted to explore it was, in a sense, not to tell my story, but to, but to use that feeling as a way into the story of four different characters who are experiencing this each in their own way. Yeah, that that metamorphosis overnight it causes him to feel a lot of things at once, right? He goes through this full-blown identity crisis, kind of like what you just described. Uh, he gets self-conscious immediately, he calls off work, uh, he sees threats everywhere that he looks, he's afraid. And it feels like the takeaway there seems to be about how much our identity and, and who we think we are is determined by how we look. Are we right about right. that? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, um, you know, in contemporary American culture and in many other cultures, um, what happens is that, you know, you're the same person. But how you are seen shapes a huge amount of of what your life is like and and also of how you behave. So Anders, for example, thinks that um, he's the same guy. He's just changed color. And surely there's some way to communicate to other people that he's the same Anders. But when he tries to do this, he finds that just, you know, trying to be himself, to act natural, to just be Anders starts to feel self-conscious. It starts to feel unnatural. And, you know, trying to act white felt, feels, you know, false. Um, like he's putting something on and people can see through him. And so he has a strange feeling that although he hasn't changed and just his appearance has changed, 
actually he is changing. Um, it's deeper than just how he looks, and and he can't help but uh, but become a different person when he's gazed at differently. Mm-hmm. You made another creative choice in this book, and that was regarding the setting. We actually don't know exactly where we are, right? It's all kind of ambiguous. You know, the town isn't named, the country isn't named. Talk about why you made that choice as a writer. Well, I think that um, it has to do with how literature, how written fiction works. So I think that the main mass reproduced storytelling forms right now are television and film. And in those worlds, you see something that looks like the world. The characters look like people. They sound like people. Um, it's, it's like the world is. It's imagined for you uh, to a large extent. But what books can do, what I think written fiction can do, is instead of imagining things entirely for you, it can sort of offer the chance to play make-believe together for reader and writer to, like children, to say, let's be pirates or let's be astronauts. And you sort of imagine the world around you. And the tree is the mass of the ship and the leaves are the fins of sharks and you're suddenly in this world. Um, I try to write novels a bit like that where, where there's big gaps and things not entirely fully uh, described or, or even named so that the reader can make the story their own story. The reader gets to be the director and the casting director and the cinematographer and they get to imagine it. So some readers have told me this is clearly small town America. Mm-hmm. And others have said, others have said, well, why did you choose not to set in America? And I, I said to both that, look, actually, it's um, it's sort of what you chose it to be. It isn't determined where it's set. Yeah, for me, it does feel like small town America, uh, for sure. Now, where do you pull from then as, as a writer when, you, when you're doing this? Is it sort of an amalgamation of different places that you've lived in or you've visited? Well, um, in a sense, I think uh, when I was imagining the place, um, I used some of my own, I guess, experiences of places, you know, like small town America um, as a starting point. Yeah. But I, but I intentionally, I guess, kept it um, sufficiently uh, vague. And it wasn't that I knew where they were and that I took stuff away. It was that, you know, it's like, um, it's like if you're dancing with somebody. If you, it's not that you know the moves they're going to make when you're dancing with them. It's that, you know, if you dance and you leave space for them to respond and then they leave space for you to respond, something happens. So you dance differently. Um, Or if you're having a conversation, it's not like you know what they're going to say back. You say something and you listen and it works. So for me, it's about the way you build the novel. Um, Having gaps in terms of uh, a lot of the novel is interior. A lot of the external stuff is being imagined by the reader. A lot of the conversation is missing. You don't hear the actual words. You just hear kind of what the point of what was being said was. And I think what naturally happens in, the, in our imaginations when we get a story that way with lots of gaps in it is we start to fill in those gaps and we start to make it our story. And for me, that was very important because I didn't want the novel to be, here's me telling you what I think about race. Instead, I wanted it to be, enter into this world, imagine it, and afterwards, see how it makes you feel. Mm. As an author, you, you explore a lot of cultural and social issues, not just in this book, the last white man, but also in your previous book, Exit West. Why that specific focus? Well, I think um, it's sort of a question is I'm 51 years old. And why do I spend a big chunk of my life, you know, every day, a few hours sitting there by myself in an imaginary world, you know, waking, st- making stuff up. Like surely I should have grown up by now and stopped doing this. <laughs> and and I think, I think, you know, partly why I'm drawn to it is, um, is maybe, I, you know, the world the way it is doesn't feel quite right to me. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not entirely comfortable with the way the world is. 
And so in the same way that a child doesn't just want to be a child, they want to be a powerful, you know, a superhero, or they want to be, you know, a, a brave pirate. Um, I think for me, uh, making these worlds is a way to, in a sense, um, move out of the limited world that we live in, but also to invite other people into looking into it in different ways. Mm. So, so it's not just an escape. In fact, it's kind of an invitation to like, what if we together thought about our world differently? What would happen? Sounds like you're, you're working toward a solution. Yeah, I think, I mean, in a way, yes, without knowing what the solution is, I think that um, uh, that's right. Imagining things is very important. So what happens in our world today is that uh, if we can't imagine sort of an optimistic, inclusive future, um, if we just can't think of what that would be, uh, and I think right now there is a huge problem in imagining that. People have a difficult time being optimistic about the future. What happens is we become nostalgic and we start looking towards the past. And leaders who tell us that, look, we should go back to how things were. Um, suddenly become very popular. And it's happening all over the world, uh, not just in America or, or Britain with Brexit, but in India and Pakistan and many countries that people are saying, look, our, better, our best days were sort of in the past. We can be like that again. Mm -hmm. Let's go back. And so I think, I think that's very dangerous. I think sort of that kind of nostalgic politics is, is very dangerous. And, and so I think there is a kind of opportunity to try to imagine our way through a, to a more optimistic you know, future uh, and it's important to do that because if we don't, then people really are stuck with just a nostalgic vision. Like a false rewriting of history. Absolutely. Because what happens is when we think of history that way, um, it isn't, you know, how history was. It's how we would wish it would, you know, it's like if I'm 51 now and I want to become, you know, 12 years old or eight years old or 22 years old again, the me that I imagined being then and the way my life was seems fantastic. But there were many things that weren't fantastic about it. Um, and I will sort of erase those things. And in you know, most cultures, uh, part of what wasn't fantastic about the way things used to be is that you know, they were incredibly unequal in the good old days. Um, uh, and, and people were treated often you know, as subhuman in different cultures. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think, I think the appeal of these nostalgias is, is partly because we've backed off from collectively imagining our way forward. And when I was young, there was a pretty strong sense from most of my youth that things would get better in the future, that, you know, we would, we would solve our problems and people would be less poor and there would be less racism and there would be a better, you know, environmental protection and, and less inequality. And now you talk to people all over the world and most people don't believe that. They believe that actually a lot of these things are just going to get worse and worse and worse. And the danger is that if we let ourselves only imagine in that way, imagine a kind of uh, diminishing future, um, we, we really do make ourselves vulnerable. And, um, and so it's important, I think, as, as artists and to, as citizens, as people, to think, you know, what's a different way of looking at things? You know, mm -hmm. what about a world where everybody can move? Okay, people think that's going to be a disaster. Will it? Let's see. What about a world where, um, in a sense, you know, racial identity disappears or, or whiteness disappears? Okay, that's very frightening to some people. But does it have to be? Let's see. And that's where imagination, I think, comes into it. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we're talking with author Mohsin Hamid. His latest book, The Last White Man, is out today, and it tackles issues of race and belonging when the main character's skin changes from white to brown overnight. You know, Mohsin, you've said that all of your books operate from what we might call consensus reality. Can you explain that? What is consensus reality? 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, I tend to depart from consensus reality. So all of my books operate at a, at a slight remove from it. And I think, you know, what it is, is that we try to pretend that the stuff we call real is completely real. It turns out, though, that that's not entirely true. So if you or I see the color yellow or red, um, that color doesn't actually exist. You know, our brain takes certain wavelengths, frequencies of light that reflects back off, off objects and tells us that they're different by calling them colors. Like in the same way that, you know, we might call a dolphin a dolphin. The word dolphin is something we made up. Um, there is a thing out there, but, you know, it, it's a word that's invented. And we're doing this all the time. So, um, we, you know, when I think about who I am, and what myself is, or you think about who yourself is. What we do is we tell ourselves a story. I'm a nice guy, you know, I'm open-minded, I'm this, I'm that. And then sometimes we behave terribly and we think, oh, you know, I wasn't myself. And it wasn't that I wasn't myself. It was that actually the story I tell about myself suddenly didn't apply to that situation. And so I think we spend our whole lives in a way telling stories about ourselves and making those stories up as we go along. But, but they are stories. And one thing that fiction gets to do is it gets to play with that. It gets to say, well, let's inhabit a story together. Let's make something up together. Um, okay, maybe it isn't real in the conventional sense, but maybe what we call the conventional sense isn't entirely real either. And maybe this kind of place where we do fiction is a really fertile place that lets us reflect back on what we call reality mm -hmm. and maybe even change reality. The last white man in this book is actually Andrew's father. And, and when he dies, everyone who lives in the town is dark. So how does that new uniformity, if you will, impact life for Anders moving forward? Well, it's interesting because it's, um, it's, it's both a uniformity and not a uniformity. So uh, nobody um, can identify visibly as being white afterwards. But it doesn't mean that people are uniform. It just means that the differences of, the, of people start to be other things, like their personalities, their characters, their senses of humor, and not, um, you know, what race do they belong to. So I think that, I think in a sense, um, losing race in the novel allows people's humanity uh, and diverse humanity to express itself better than, than having race as a construct that, that actually suppress people's humanity. And the other thing I'd say about this is, you know, the book is very much about, about loss. It's about Anders's father, who's unwell, who's dying during the course of the novel, about his, you know, his dealing with that, about his sons dealing with that, about Una, Anders's girlfriend, and her mother dealing with their own losses. And what the book, I think, tries to do is for all of these characters is to um, be very respectful of their feeling of loss, even if the thing that they're losing, you know, their sense of whiteness is something that, you know, maybe I wouldn't necessarily celebrate. Um, their feeling of losing something important to, to themselves is of, of huge importance. And the book tries to give that feeling of loss uh, enormous dignity without saying the thing being lost is necessarily a good thing. I know you wrote this book during the pandemic. And, uh, you know, of course, Anders is, is sort of patient zero in a way, right? He's the first person whose skin changes, but ultimately everyone's skin changes. How did the pandemic influence how and, and what you wrote? It's a great question. I, I, I think the pandemic actually was pretty influential. Um, we don't know why uh, Anders' skin changes color, why people's appearance starts to change. We don't know the reason for it. And the idea of the novel and the initial uh, approaches to the novel were things that I came up with and had written before the pandemic. But, but the pandemic did two things. It, it, one, it kind of ripped this hole in reality 
where all of us suddenly found that, oh, it's possible to have no international flights and have all the schools shut and have people, you know, working from home and, um, and so many people just, you know, uh, living completely different lives almost overnight. And in that sense, the pandemic reminded us that what we call, you know, reality and civilization are pretty thin veneers over yeah. something else. But the other part of it was that feeling of, you know, something is happening. First, you hear about it in the distance and then it happens to somebody in your town. And then suddenly it's all around you and it's this crazy thing. And you don't know if it's going to pass or if it's going to destroy everything. And I think that feeling of the pandemic, um, that spirit of the pandemic is very much in the novel, that sense that something is coming from far away. It's suddenly here. We don't know how bad it's going to get. And then hopefully it passes. You know, the, the book deals blatantly with uh, racial politics and identity, as we've discussed. Were you drawing from other authors on the subject of, of race? When I was a, a student, I, I was fortunate enough to, to study with Toni Morrison. I began my first novel in the class that Toni Morrison taught. Oh, great. She was enormously influential as a, as a writer. I, I studied with Cornell West, um, uh, who was also, you know, a real visionary on, on these issues. And um, and perhaps, you know, one person, well, two others have come to mind. One is um, Edward Said, and whose book Orientalism really had a huge impact on me. But, but I want to say that, you know, uh, perhaps one of the most striking things was an interview I, I saw or, or a debate I saw involving James Baldwin. And it was very interesting because what Baldwin said was that, you know, in a sense, my racial identity is something that you needed. Um, you gave it to me. And you need to ask yourself why you needed to give it to me, because it isn't mine. You have given this and you, you know, you being sort of a, a white uh, a viewer of his racial identity. Mm. And I was always I was always really struck by that. The idea that, in a sense, um, it isn't blackness or brownness or these sorts of things um, that that, in a sense, are, I guess, in need of being erased. It was the need to create something called whiteness, which then required the building of these other black and brown identities. And so uh, rather than asking the question, you know, how do black, brown, other people assimilate into the idea of whiteness, which has been asked for a very long time, I think it's worth sort of following up on Baldwin's question and saying, why does whiteness need to continue? Do we need to differentiate in these ways? Like why, why does this foundational kind of racial piece of the puzzle need to be? Because if we don't need it, then maybe we don't need the other categories either. So instead of thinking about a kind of assimilation of people into an idea of whiteness, it might be worth thinking about dispelling the idea of whiteness so that people can just be people. That's author Mohsen Hamid. His latest book, The Last White Man, is out today. Mohsen, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.